we go. Sorry. And hopefully you're encouraged by the Stephen Ministry uh, video that we just watched together. And again, if you have any questions about that or you're fit for it, if you are interested in serving or if you're in a situation where you would love for somebody to come alongside you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to finish off this chapter, and then we have two more chapters that are going to be talking about a lot of really cool and good things that we, I'm sure many of us in here are hopeful and anticipating and eager to see one great and glorious day. But before that great and glorious day, we have some stuff to deal with. And uh, I was just talking with somebody uh, yesterday, and they were eagerly wanting to know what today would hold. And I said, well, there's going to be a lot of Satan, death, and hell. So, so let's just dig into it. We're going to read verses 7 through 15 of Revelation chapter 20. 7 through 15. Let's hear God's word. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil that deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. As we come to a very sobering, heavy, and overwhelming passage, we certainly pray that you would be with us. You do good work in our hearts, that you draw our hearts to you see in you not only this power to bring about your justice, but also the same power to bring about salvation. And God, I would pray that you would tenderize our hearts with this truth, that any heart that might be hardened toward you or far from you would be drawn near to you through faith in King Jesus. And for those of us whose hearts are resting in Christ, that they would be strengthened and fortified to live out our lives following him, our King. So be with us as we consider these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's last battle, which is a part of the Chronicle of Narnia series, Lewis paints Narnia and all the readers into the corner. Deception and destruction have come to Narnia. A fraudulent Aslan was set up and terrible things were being done in his name. A cabal of enemy forces against Narnia seemed to have the upper hand, and even the truest of Narnians were struggling with what seemed to be lost. King Tyrrhenian put into the perspective the weariness of such an overwhelming context. 
and deep confusion with this Aslan who didn't seem so Aslan-y. He goes on to say, Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? It is as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun. But then in the series and in the last battle, the real Aslan does come, does arrive, and is more, much more, more than what was believed in and longed for, with a roar that shook the earth and a power that overwhelmed everything, well, everywhere, Aslan arrived. And so it is for us as we come to our last battle in Revelation. We are faced with the same sort of struggling question. Is King Jesus like what we have believed and longed for? And our passage today says, no, not necessarily. He's more. He's much, much more. Today we get to consider the fact that Jesus indeed wins. He wins. In unmistakable ways, He wins. In unavoidable ways, He wins. Jesus wins. And we're going to consider together that Jesus wins with, first of all, victory in the last battle. There is no more battles after this. There is no more conflict. There is no more struggle. There's no more hardship. There's no more. We'll consider these truths and joys in the coming weeks. But there's no more because Jesus wins with victory in the last battle. And not only does he win with victory in the last battle, Jesus wins with finality in the last word. He has the last say. He has the last word. And this hopefully will bring great comfort to our hearts that might feel weary living in a world that is very hard and where evil is very present. But also, also not just comfort, but, but hopefully strength. Strength and encouragement to continue holding on to Christ. So let's consider together, first of all, Jesus wins with victory in the last battle. Look again at verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There are a couple of things that we want to say about Jesus' victory in this last battle. The first is this. Jesus wins pervasively. This is very important because we, I want us to feel something first in order to see and feel then, if you will, Jesus' win is just as is more pervasive. So let's get a sense of the scope of the gathered opposition first. Firstly, before we do that, I just want to say that this is the last battle. This isn't another battle in a slew of battles that we've been reading about in Revelation. In fact, all these battles that we've been reading about, and specifically we'll look again in Revelation 16 and in 19 and then here again in 20, it's all looking at the same last battle. 
It's like if you take a jewel and you hold it up and you, you turn it and you, you see different cuts and clarity and brightness. It, it's the same jewel, but you're looking at it from a different angle and you're seeing something new and, and amazing about it. And so Revelation is pointing out this great and glorious end from different kinds of angles. It's the same one end, just from a different perspective. And so here we are getting a perspective of the very last battle, which we've already come across a couple of times. In Revelation 16, verses 14 and 16, we see a very famous passage where the the people, the same people that are referenced here in Revelation 20, assemble for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so in Revelation 16, we're seeing the picture of the very last battle. In Revelation 20, we're getting a picture of the very last battle. And then just last week, we considered Revelation 19. And we saw, uh, again, this same battle in verses 19 and 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So this isn't three different battles. This is references to the same battle, the very last one. And as we look at the language that is associated with each of these battles in Revelation 16, 19, and 20, it's very clear that it's all of God's enemies going against God and his king, and and they are all of them losing in, in very clear fashion. They are totally wiped out. So if this were some sort of chronological breakdown uh, of the very end, and we had these big successive battles, part of it, the question is, who on earth, literally, not the, not the figurative speech, but literally, who on earth is left for these other battles? So after you read 16, there's no one left. After you read 19, there's no one left. And if you read 20, there's no one left. And so they're all looking at the same last battle. Secondly, we find that this last battle is the world united against God and his people. It is a massive opposition. We have these two weird words, Gog and Magog, referring to an Old Testament story found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And they, these words are summaries of a, an intense worldwide opposition against the church. Gog and Magog were a united, vast opposition against the Old Testament Israel. And these united armies dwarfed Israel in number, in resources, and in everything. And they brought an overwhelming onslaught that was unbelievably severe, but also very brief, because their defeat came swiftly and powerfully at the hands of God on behalf of his people. In Ezekiel 39, I just want to highlight a lengthy portion, just highlight a few verses from that chapter that gives you a sense that God took up the fight for his people and brought overwhelming justice against Gog and Magog. In in chapter 39, looking at verse 1, 4, and 6, it says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey and every sort 
and to beasts of the field to be devoured, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I will deal with his enemies. He will take up the fight for his people. And this fight against a very united front is what we see here at the very end, the very end of time, if you will. We find that this picture, this the symbolic picture of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 is, a, is an overwhelming opposition. They're gathered from the four corners of the earth, which is a reference to the whole world. It is the whole system of the world. That they are so numbered that you can't even count them. That they march up over uh, the, the, essentially the, the rim, the brim of the earth. There's so many that they just spill out. The opposition is so overwhelming. And they surround the camp of the saints and the city of the people of God. They surround God's people. It's an overwhelming, darkening, um, constricting scene that we see here played out in Revelation 20. Great evil and darkness and opposition to God and his people. And it's given this sort of crazy picture for us to get a sense of the kind of opposition to God's character and to his people. The scene painted here is one of an innumerable horde of overwhelming enemies engulfing the people of God. We're to feel that. That the world against is bent against God and against his people. The man-made, man-centered system of the world that is a, a offering an alternative, an antagonistic alternative to our lives eventually gathers against God to overthrow him and his people. We should feel that. Feel the encroaching, claustrophobic nature of it. Because the next words are all the more amazing. The consuming victory over them all. Verse 9 of Revelation 20. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Don't skip a beat here. Don't read past that and move on and think, oh, that's awesome. Think about a global opposition to God and his people visually. Picture that in your head. Then comes catastrophic, cosmic, consuming fire that comes suddenly and overwhelmingly Jesus wins pervasively, pervasively over it all. This horde of opposition that is confronting God and his people are wiped out pervasively by the king. Keep the scope of the gathered opposition in mind and then think how overwhelmed they are by Jesus. Jeff had mentioned in his prayer, Hebrews eleven twenty nine. God is an all-consuming fire. And it's not just a, 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 a sort of word picture to get a sense of his character, but it is, it's just also to expand our head and our heart to the scope of his pervasive power over all his enemies, sin, death, Satan, the grave, over them all. The victory King Jesus brings is pervasive. There is none 
left. Yes, King Jesus is more, so much more than what we have believed and longed for. Jesus wins pervasively. Within that pervasively um, winning victory, we also know that Jesus wins powerfully. We've been stressing this for the last few weeks, but we'll stress it again. Jesus wins powerfully, and he does so by KOing Satan. He, he does so by KOing Satan, and I mean that. Like, let's look again at verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we, we know that Satan is an overwhelming enemy against God and his people. You and I do not have the resources in ourselves to withstand, a, a, let's say, an assault by Satan. It is a fallen angel, has abilities different than us, not like God, but more than us. It's, it's an enemy that we cannot beat on our own. We should feel intimidated and overwhelmed by the thought of Satan. Should not make us feel comfortable or casual. And yet, here Satan gets tossed. But really, he gets thrown down with such tremendous force that the same word used here for thrown into the lake of fire is the same word that you would use to smite somebody with a slap, that you would hit somebody so hard that they fell to hell. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He knocks Satan down so hard he lands in hell. Jesus wins powerfully. And it's okay to celebrate that. It's okay to find great comfort and hope in that. He doesn't leave any room of doubt over who was the baddest dude in the fight. He wins powerfully, friends. Powerfully. We may feel our everyday weakness. We may feel the frustration and struggle with daily sin things that we want to shake but we struggle with. We may feel overwhelmed by the prospect of death, either our own or our loved ones. We may be afraid or terrified of the grave. All of these things are bigger than us, more than us. And then there's this whole evil world that we live in. And it can just be enough for us to all just think, I just, I just can't keep going right now. It feels easier to bail and just live a comfortable life. I want to say to you, don't bail. You belong to one who powerfully wins pervasively over everything. Sin, death, Satan, all of it. Don't bail. Satan, that father of lies, that hater of God, that murderer of his people spends eternity under the unrelenting, grievous pain of King Jesus' powerful justice. And so as we think about this, that Jesus wins with a victory in the last battle, as we think about this picture of how pervasive and powerful that victory is, take those truths that God has given John a glimpse of and put into words so that we could get some sort of concept of into our heads and into our hearts. Take those truths and fortify your faith with this encouragement. 
that the sun will rise. You may have dark days, and maybe you will live in overcast all the days of your life from this moment on. You may face struggles until your days are done. I have no idea, none of us do, what our days will hold. And in the midst of maybe struggles and maybe joys and in the toggling back and forth, the sun will ultimately rise with King Jesus' victory. And with that victory will come the reassuring confidence and joy and sight that there is no more enemy for your soul. So hold on by believing and longing for the King who reigns, who rules, and one day will return. And when he does, when he does, all of the enemies of our soul and the enemies of God's character will be no more. Now, hold on. The last battle, C.S. Lewis's book and the Chronicles of Narnia have some of the saddest words of the entire series. In the last battle, we find that one of the four children that we were following along through the series did not continue holding on. It's a sad sentence, and it says, My sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And so this encouragement, that revelation is, is also a warning to not bail. You may feel overwhelmed in a life is hard world. You may feel overwhelmed and despairing in an evil is real world. You may feel overwhelmed, and in that overwhelmed feeling, seek something else. For your life. As, as one standing here preaching, I say, don't bail, don't let go. As a church family, we are to be in each other's lives, encouraging one another to keep Christ in view. He is worth it, He is worthy. He is enough. In fact, we can say to each other, King Jesus is more than we are believing and longing for much more. And our job when we get together on Sundays and and Wednesdays and random Tuesdays in a coffee shop or in our backyard celebrating graduations or in our living rooms and our life groups and all the other things in between, our job, our care for one another is just simply to remind each other that Jesus is worth it and he wins, so let's hold on together. Let's keep believing and longing for a king greater than we could dare to dream. Jesus wins pervasively and powerfully. Let us be encouraged by that and let us encourage one another with that truth. Secondly, we find that Jesus wins with finality. Finality with the last word. The last word on the matter. Let's look again at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus wins with a finality in the last word. And first we see is a comprehensive verdict. Jesus is laying out all the verdicts on all the things as history is wrapped up and eternity is about to be ushered on. And, and here we find him seated on the throne. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Seated. Completed. Not at war. Just finalizing all the things that come from the victory that he has over all of God's enemies. He's leveling the verdict on the defeated enemy. He can sit down. So complete, so comprehensive is his victory, and now so comprehensive is his verdict. And he's giving the verdict from the highest authority in the heavens and the earth anywhere, really, the throne. And that means nothing escapes the final verdict for all of history and all of humanity. All peoples everywhere at all times are gathered up. All peoples everywhere from all time are gathered up. Look again at verses 12 and 13. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged that was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book, in the, found in, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So everyone everywhere, those who have rejected God and rebelled against him have no hope when the king sits on his throne. And those who have turned to Christ in their life, who trust in his life, death, and resurrection for salvation, you also have great hope when the king sits down on his throne. So this is either a a terrifying scene or a a glorifying scene when Jesus sits and levels the final verdict on everything, everywhere. Which makes, as we anticipate that day of Christ's return, it makes today the day of salvation. The Bible says that repeatedly. Today is the day of salvation. And what? Do not harden your hearts. Today is that day to hear and to receive and to believe and to trust that Jesus is enough to rescue you from your sin, to deliver you from the grave, to overcome the enemies of Satan and evil in this broke down world, and to bring you into right fellowship with God for all eternity. There is no other day. Don't wait. Don't delay. Today is the day. Don't harden your hearts. Nothing escapes that final verdict for all of history and all humanity. Not even death and Hades. Death and Hades don't escape. Guess what? They get gathered up and get tossed and thrown down forcefully with the devil. Now you might be wondering, what in the world is Hades? Well, a lot of people have spent, spilled a lot of ink on what Hades is. It's not necessarily hell. It's not necessarily the grave. Actually kind of confusing exactly what Hades is. So let me just bring a little clarity to 
this confusing idea. It simply represents the separation that comes when our bodies go to the ground and our souls don't. And for the believer, the great comfort is when our body goes to the ground, our soul goes to be with Christ. What a great comfort. Paul was resting in that comfort in his letter to the Philippians. If he was going to live, it was going to be for Jesus. If he was going to be died, that was going to be better because he was going to go be with Jesus. <laughs> but there will be a day in which all of that is gathered up. And, and, and there's a final verdict on all of it. Essentially, the effects of the fall of sin get dealt with. What does sin bring? It brings death and separation. Sin brings death and separation. And Jesus brings an end of death and separation. Deals with it all, finally, fully. The comprehensive verdict of the victorious king is that all of the consequences of sin are thrown into the fire of his justice too. Oh, it's so good. So overwhelmingly awesome to know that King Jesus deals with it all. Every jot, every every little speck of everything in all of history. He deals with it all. There's no little mold of sin that gets to linger on into Christ's kingdom, secretly and quietly growing and spreading like mold does. No, he deals with it all. And that comprehensive verdict then gives way to a comprehensive restoration which is really going to be the focus of the remaining two chapters of Revelation. But we want to touch on something here because of a very interesting phrase or turn of phrase that we find in verse 11. From his presence, so he's sitting on the throne, victorious, so he can sit. There's nothing to do but level the verdict over the defeated enemy. So from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This isn't necessarily a scene of total annihilation. It's more like demo day before the renovation begins. For those of you who are in a home project, you've probably been in that home project for the last three decades, some of you, right? As I've come to learn and experience in New England, a home renovation project is for the rest of your life. So I'm sure that's not exciting, and probably the word picture breaks down for our context. That being said... (laughs) It's demo day and renovation all sort of swooping in together. There are four things that doesn't necessarily mean they're happening in these like real like categorical comprehensive like steps and stages because it's Jesus and he can do it all at once. But I do want us to think about these four things sort of serving us as a wrap up to him dealing with his enemies and getting ready to remake it all. All things everywhere will be remade. But he's dealing with demo day right now. So let's look at these and consider these four things. First, in this action in which all of earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them, we first see that Jesus is overturning the fallen world. King Jesus overturns the fallen world. 2 Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be all burned up, and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so he is overturning the fallen world. Secondly, we find it's a removal 
of all corruption. So not only does he flip the script, but then he removes all corruption. Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We find that even creation is longing for corruption to be removed. And so Jesus, King Jesus, is dealing with all of this at the very end. He is overturning the fallen world, and he is removing all corruption, all hints and shadows and stains of corruption everywhere. Like I said, no speck of mold of corruption will live on in King Jesus' kingdom. Then we find that our next two are really going to be the heart of focus in Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to see, thirdly, a remaking of the new world. Jesus will remake. So he overturns. The demo day kicks in. He overturns and he removes all that has been broken. And now he will remake the new world. In Matthew 19, 28, he's speaking and he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, Jesus speaking, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, so where we're at, right, in Revelation 20. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a great anticipation to enjoy the new world that King Jesus establishes. And then fourthly, we find that there is a restoration of all things, of all things everywhere. In Acts 3, 19 through 21, we get a picture of that restoration we experience in our life when we repent and turn to God and, and how that is even just a foretaste of the great cosmic restoration when King Jesus returns. But anyway, 3, 19 through 21 in Acts says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. God's redemptive plan ends with the restoration of all things. And that is brought on because Jesus wins with a victory that in the last battle and with finality in the last verdict. And so similarly, as we thought about Jesus winning that last battle and that fortifying our faith, so too, looking and anticipating what Jesus will do in demo day and renovation, in the restoration of all things, May that too bring great encouragement to our faith. King Jesus will deal with everything so comprehensively that eternal restoration will be the outcome. It's amazing. Nothing is hanging in the balance. Nothing can overwhelm King Jesus. No project is too big for him. No demo day is too vast for him. No renovation is too much for him. He speaks, and it is. Be careful to not think of all four of those in some sort of sequential time order like you would with your own projects. He speaks, and it is. That's the power of your king. It will truly be heaven on earth reality where God and his people will dwell together. For the king has defeated every sin, every enemy, every hint of them, and has remade it all. We may feel overwhelmed. We may have spiritual short-sightedness. 
And whether our hearts are weary or wandering, when we gather together like we are doing right now, we have the wonderful privilege to remind each other with great hope and anticipation, even in our weariness, and hopefully by God's grace here, even in our wandering, we have a king who wins. He wins, friends, pervasively, powerfully, comprehensively. He wins. And when the king returns, we will see that he is more, much more than we believed and longed for. And because we get a glimpse of this now right here in this passage, by God's grace, we have it here in the word. Friends, let us hold on until the day our faith moves to sight and we get to enjoy the victory of our King. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We certainly pray that it would bring timely encouragement to us in the midst of our weariness, our, our wanderings, God, would you strengthen our faith? Give us uh, an increased, uh, a heart that has an increasing longing for and believing in King Jesus. May his pervasive, powerful victory bring to us daily strength and comfort to live out our lives in a, in a hard and evil world. But you are in control, God, and your king wins. And may we trust and believe in Jesus' name. Amen.